and welcome to the People in Flow podcast. This third and final instalment in the three-part series in which we talk to Dave Ulrich about the contemporary world of human resources. Dave Ulrich, a prolific author of 30 books, is ranked as the number one management guru by Business Week. He was profiled by Fast Company as one of the world's top 10 creative people in business. He is a top five coach in Forbes and recognized on Thinkers 50 as one of the world's leading business thinkers. Dave Ulrich has a passion for ideas with impact. He is a professor at the Ross School of Business, University of Michigan. Dave's work focuses on how organizations develop their impact through leveraging human resources. His work on the HR business partner model truly changed the industry. Episode three, here's Dave introduce the three B's to Neville and Simon, and they discuss their potential impact in going beyond engagement. In doing so, the trio also ponder the price of belonging and the differences that set enablement apart from management. I think it's really interesting, you know, your three B's and your comment that a lot of work has been done on becoming and not so much on the belonging piece. Curious about the belief piece, because I guess that in organizations where there is a strong sense of the value of the brand in terms of how that delivers to their customers, then quite naturally your HRs are going to be aware of the impact on the belief side of the business. So I think that would be kind of like my number two. But on the, on the belonging piece, I think you're right. I think there's a sort of diffidence about being willing to say, this is a place where you can come and belong. I don't want to think about that because, you know, I call it my first proper job was in the army. <laughs> but there was a clear recognition that, that joining the army was joining a way of life. And there was no shame about the notion of that being something where it was an identity shift. It was an identity level choice. I do not see corporations willing to put their recruiting in that sort of a way. I don't know what's behind that diffidence, if it exists or not. I just wonder what, what your view is. Great comment. Neville's mentioned twice now, and you just alluded to it. I think the definition of culture in our field has been misappropriated or misused. I think we often equate culture with values, and I believe in values. Values are solid anchors. They're the roots of the tree. They're who we are. They're what we believe. But I believe culture, if, if on the left hand you have values, kind of the, the norms of good behavior, innovation, integrity, trust, respect, and on the right hand, you have, Simon, what you just talked about, your firm's identity in the marketplace, its brand. Amazon in America has a brand. Well, that's not true. Amazon worldwide has a brand. Uh, yeah. HSBC is really working to build their brand. Every time I go through an airport, I see their brand of creativity. Yeah. And you go on, my left hand are values, fundamental beliefs. My right hand is identity. When I put those together, that's where culture comes. For me, culture takes the external brand that we're trying to be known for and turns it into an internal set of behaviors that are then based on the values. And so it isn't just having a culture and people say, well, our culture is X. Well, yeah. that's really our value set. Our culture should be what we're known for in the marketplace made real to our employees every day. And that for me has been a really helpful metaphor that values defined by the receiver, the value of culture. I wrote an essay once a, a few years ago called the value of values. The value of values yeah. is the customers will pay a premium for me. If I go to uh, Disneyland in, a, in around the world, one of their theme parks, Disney World has a brand with Cinderella and the princess and the ride, and they get people to spend an obscene amount of money. Now, if Disney listens to this, it was a wonderful experience. 
uh, <laughs> for the seven-year-old daughter. It wasn't as good for the two-year-old. It wasn't as good for the grandfather. Great experience for the daughter. Um, when she saw the princess Cinderella, she just swooned. But Disney's brand is so attractive that mm -hmm. it causes people like me and our son and our grandchildren to spend an enormous amount of money having that value. They've created the right culture, a culture that really wins for them. I think in HR, when I think about that belonging, I want to belong to an organization that not only has a strong set of moral code, of value, I totally agree with that, but it also has an identity in the marketplace that entices both customers, investors, and the community as a whole to feel drawn to that organization. Yeah, talk about the belonging part of that then, because I'm seeing most of that, what you're referring to is in the belief part. This is creating meaning out of the values and the culture of the brand that we demonstrate and make it real. So how is that distinguished then from the from the belonging part? No, great question. Let's, as I said, I just thought of this three days ago, so I'm still making it up, which is really fun. Um, I think belonging says, I feel connected to the organization I'm a part of. At a high level, that's that's a connection to the enterprise. You, yeah. you're connected to the army. I was just uh, one of the reasons I'm not doing videotape is I just I, I I'm, my exercise routine is to do sit-ups while watching a tape television show, which is really this is not a highbrow, high intellectual. And I was just watching a, a report on um, the U.S. Navy SEALs. Yeah, what a remarkable belonging I mean you belong to this seal group you belong to that military and you're connected to the organization partly you believe in it it helps you become better but the organization itself has an identity that makes it part of your identity it goes down to a team of four yeah I belong to this team I'm in an organization where there's a crisis there's a need the organization stops action and focuses on helping you feel comfortable and meeting that need I'm in an organization where somebody loses a spouse or somebody has a physical problem and all of a sudden the world stops and we worry about you. We, we take care of you. We make you part of our community. But the other piece of belonging for me at a personal level, and it's how I differentiate technology, there's a concept in psychology called a BID, B-I-D. It comes out of John Gottman's work and it's just wonderful. I think in technology, if I make a BID to my thousand people who follow my my work I say oh I'm really having a tough day I'd like to talk not many will respond yeah. I think in an organization when I make a bid either in a family organization or another organization somebody's gonna respond and they're yeah. gonna say you know I don't know you very well but you know you're having some struggles with this I'll be there tomorrow let's chat or you say to Dave Dave I sense you're struggling with this how can I be helpful out of a sincerity that I belong. The other thing I'm going to mention about belonging that I think is key is you got to pay a price. I've been married over 40 years. Now I'm going to say I'm in a great relationship. We like each other. We love each other. We care about each other. But you know, you still got to pay a price to make it work. And yeah. that's where I think belonging says your team of four, we're going to pay a price. A, we're going to have meetings together. B, we're going to share when things don't go well. That's not easy to do. We're going to sacrifice some of our own self-interest for the for the for the good of the team. Mm -hmm. I'm going to share with you some data that I'd love to use, but I think it'll help the team, and maybe you can use it more. I think belonging requires a bit of sacrifice, yeah. and I think that's what organizations 
We need to ask people. We need to say, yeah, yeah we, we need you to pay a price. It comes out in so many areas. Simon used the phrase, you know, we've got each other's back. And that Thanks. kind of sums up great praise one of the team you've just worked with referred to. And for me, it's one of the, the real dilemmas you have with this whole performance management versus performance enablement, because quite often you, you end up becoming selfish with objectives as opposed to collective yeah. with them and saying, look, we can put ours down for a bit and we'll help you achieve yours because if we help you achieve yours, then I can achieve mine and we can all achieve together. You refer to great organizations, create great teams. Dave. I think that is a mindset thing and it comes from the way people are rewarded. That's where I see the whole people support infrastructure needs to enable, as you've said, the, the belief, the become and the belong. And maybe we don't always think about the belong element and the consequence of the actions or the support frameworks that are being put in. I think that this is an interesting sort of point because you use the whole word support infrastructure because of course we're talking mostly about large organizations. I mean, the organizations that are going to have yeah. upwards of 120 people. And therefore you have to have infrastructure, you know, hard things that help the soft things to happen. And that's a very difficult thing to do. I want to point in three different directions, and Dave, you can choose where you want to go. <laughs> but uh, what is that, you know, the conundrum of using hard things, like, for example, technology and social media, how does that help the becoming belonging and, um, and beliefs? And then also, what are the different roles? Because you can imagine at the highest level, what you're advocating for, uh, HR to stand for, is stand for the leaders and the organization delivering to the customer. So they're standing for the customers of that organization and how the organization organizes itself to deliver to those customers. It's a really sort of abstracted values-based stance that they've got to adopt, but they've also then got to adopt at different parts of the HR organization. The practice of doing that with individual people and also setting up the infrastructure that enables the organization to deliver that on a continuous basis. Amen, amen, amen. I said amen to all three. Uh, <laughs> let me try to answer with a, a bit of a visual and then a, a concept. If I had three circles that overlapped, a Venn diagram, one circle is the business. How do we win in the marketplace? One circle is change, kind of the legacy or development, making things happen. And the third circle is HR. I think those three circles have to overlap. I came into HR kind of out of the OD change circle. Mm -hmm. I was a young doctoral student trying to get money to pay. There was a sign back then, we'll consult for food. It was, we'll teach any course for food. And, and I was teaching a course at a local university and part of the course required a tea group. You'd go off Friday night, you'd share something personal, you'd work it all Friday night and Saturday, blah, blah, blah. Very uh, real kind of course. I was young, I didn't have a lot of experience. We started the course and somebody blurted out, uh, I've been raped. And it, it, by the way, it just struck me like a ton of bricks. Mm. I disbanded the course. I said, I'm not qualified to deal with that. I am. I get emotional even today, mm. 40 years later. This is an injustice to you. I mean, and I stopped the course and got a hold of somebody that night who could help her through that. But one of the lessons I learned is that you can go do a team building offsite. That's the change piece. But if you don't weave it into the infrastructure, that's the mm. HR piece. 
mm-hmm. how we hire, how we pay, how we train, how we promote, how we manage careers. It's an isolated event. And it hit me yeah. that doing these isolated team events not connected to the HR systems are not going to create sustained change. Now, the third circle is the business. Both of those have to be connected to winning. And it's at the intersection of those three where I think HR should be playing. And you described it beautifully, Simon, in your discussion of the team. You said this team of four comes together. There's a business context that brings it together. So you got business, you got the team working together, and now you're going to have to weave that into the HR systems so that that does get woven into performance enablement, as Neville said. And I think it's that intersection that is so critical. I played on the change side. I mean, that, that experience was so telling to me, even 40 years later, I feel that emotion. No, I am not going to go do an isolated offsite where something as personal as that comes out and not give you the infrastructure to deal with it. That intersection is, is really where the meaning comes. And, and what's interesting for me, now let me take that intersection to the technology space Simon talked about. Yeah. I think technology is an assistant and an enabler. It's not an end, it's a means. Most of the HR work I see in technology, and we just did an essay on this, is is using technology to become more efficient and more innovative of our current stuff. I bet you guys get the same emails I get. I get two or three emails a week about the latest, greatest technology that will change the entire world of HR. Hey, we send some of those. (laughs) (laughs) I I forward them to you. I think, though, technology's got to go to the next step, to access information and then to build connection. I'm starting to see companies using technology as a connection. And and Simon, I think your example of team was a really good one because it's a, uh, and again, you would know this, Neville, in e-learning, we found that e-learning in isolation doesn't work well. It's blended learning. Yeah. And, and Simon, what you described with your team is really blended teamwork. It's yeah. a virtual but it's blended. And yeah. I think that's where the connection can begin to come from. You know, you said a little while ago that the, the problem with books is that you, you think of something and you, it's moved on immediately. Well, I just thought of something that would, that you just flagged there. That it's not just about creating your personal learning playbook, if you like, but also that needs to be in the context of the team playbook. Where do I fit within nice. the, the need of the team? and that isn't in the book, but it probably should have been, but it'll be somewhere soon. I love the idea that we need fresh and new ideas. Books, by the way, have a huge role because books, I think, in fact, it was so weird. My wife and I did a book called The Why of Work, and somebody sent us a note a week or two ago and said, oh, I just read this. It's so current. Books have a, a table life that does endure over time. Blogs have a half-life of two weeks. <laughs> They're gone. Yeah. So I do like books. In fact, we're doing a couple of books right now that we hope will have table life. But I'd love to ask each of you, you talk to so many people, what are one or two issues that seem to be bubbling out there that people go, oh, that's an issue. I don't really have a good answer to it yet. I think for me at the moment, I'm getting people having an issue with clarifying precisely which button they can press to improve productivity. Oh, that's it. I think there are so many different buttons that their pathway for improvement is confused and they're getting advice from so many sources that actually to be able to create some clarity in that would be good. So that's one. 
And I think the second one is related to it precisely. And you've actually talked about it in, in a number of articles about focusing on deliverables more than doables, impact rather than activity kind of stuff. And I, th I think for me, clarity in understanding the button for productivity will come when you know which measure matters most in your own unique organization. And I think part of the problem is stop looking for other people's advice and start working out what you need. If we could collectively help HR people to realize that they've got their own, as you said, Simon, you've got your own problem here and we've got to find our own way of working out what needs to be done. Yes, you can understand what other people do, but actually, what do we need to do? That's an issue that I think is bubbling away there somewhere. Yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I find, uh, I'm starting to find that, well, the headline is that I hear from you is, how do you find simplicity on the other side of complexity? And complexity is just a world that's inundated and awash with ideas. People can go to TED Talks, they go to your broadcast, they go to my blog. There's a lot of ideas out there, but how do we find simplicity on the other side of that complexity? And uh, I think that's a very useful challenge. HR people are inundated. I mean, every, the apps, the conferences, the innovative ideas. So how do we filter that in a way that helps? Yeah. I really like that question, Neville. That's a great thought. Yeah. Simon, you're? Yeah, no, my, I, I think it was noise and pressure. In the business clients, I don't, and in fact, same, same for the HRs, but I, who works their standard hours. And, you know, the contrast is you talk about Sweden where they've, officially but they've gone to a six-hour working day and you know productivity is increasing i think people really struggle with the volume and multiple directions of inputs and at the same time volume and multiple directions of demand and to neville's point what do i pay attention to what button do i press that's actually going to make the difference and how do i how do i simplify I think part of that problem is because even if you go back 10 years, it's much more networked technologically, socially and otherwise now than it was. And therefore, you've got to take into account more variety of inputs and outputs and you've got to take into account that things can change on a dime. You know, the speed of, of response or interaction is much, much faster. It's a difficult place to work and a difficult place to be, and, and, and it requires, therefore, people are, people are actually working at simplifying as a thing that there is part of their focus. How do I simplify? It's a continuing question. And also, just putting the two together, which is, how do I let go of things? How do I, what, what is it I actually don't need to do is a challenge for everyone. What about you, Dave? Asking the question straight back at you. What do you find bubbling under there? I mean, I'm doing a piece in, on LinkedIn on hubris. We just published a yeah. piece on certification versus competence. I'm just on, <laughs> on, on uh, Don't do that. Don't do that, Dave. That one just came out yesterday. We so. love our badges. Oh, we love our badges. We love our badges. But And they're good. Badges are good. But I picked two things to do a book on. And I think books have to be pretty high level because they take... Well, Neville, as you know, they take a long time to write. They take a long time in the publication cycle, and hopefully they have shelf life. One is rethinking organizations and how do we, how do we create organizations as ecosystems that sustain long-term success? So that's one, this, and, and it's a piece of belonging, but it's really organization. 
the metaphor for that book, and I always love to find a very simple metaphor, about a year ago in the United States on the beach, and it could have been anywhere, a mother, her two sons, and her mother, the grandmother, were were standing there. The two sons got in the water, and a riptide started carrying them out to the ocean. The mother saw it, she jumped in, she was carried out. The grandmother saw it, she was carried out. And they're literally at risk of being carried out in a riptide, and we can envision that scene. Within less than two minutes, 80 people joined arms where the water was shallow, got boogie boards, beach balls, and they rescued the four people. I mean, what a wonderful story. Here's the question I'm interested in. How do you take that metaphor in an organization with 5,000, 10,000, or 100,000 people. How do you create an organization that builds that rapid response ecosystem to a challenge or opportunity, in this case, the challenge of being carried out in a riptide? How do you institutionalize that? And we're doing a book on how to do that. I think that's an interesting kind of intellectual question. I'm not sure it's as applied question. Thank you for listening to the third and final episode in the People in Flow with Dave Ulrich series. If you would like to know more about the topics discussed, click on the links in the description and tune in for more interesting discussions in the next episode.